The way we take care of ourselves is ever evolving. And what we know for sure is that our mind and spirit are linked to our physical body and that our wellness seems to extend into our communities and the planet we all share. It is very, very clear that wellness is interconnected. We love spending time with you to explore and practice the breakthroughs, the insights, and the passions of incredible people helping us all see the world in a whole new light. This is HealthGig. Clay Rutledge, PhD, is the author of the book, Pass Forward, How Nostalgia Can Help You Live a More Meaningful Life. He is a leading expert in existential psychology. Trisha and I look forward to talking to Clay about an interesting topic that we don't often talk about, and that's nostalgia. Welcome, Clay, to HealthGig. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to join you. Clay, what is an existential psychologist? So an existential psychologist is essentially someone who studies how humans approach the big questions that, as far as we know, are distinct to our species. So we're very smart. We've got these big brains, right? And that allows us to do things such as ask why we're here. What purpose do we serve? What happens after we die? We can think about the future. We can think about the past, which obviously we'll talk about these capacities. A big part of the human condition is not just, you know, living in this like physical world of day-to-day like survival, but thinking beyond the self, like thinking about the transcendent and wanting to leave a mark, to do something important, to have meaning in life. And so all those issues around those big philosophical topics are what existential psychologists are interested in. More specifically, you know, to the best we can, these are pretty abstract ideas. But to the best we can, we try to use the tools of modern behavioral science to investigate them. So what happens when people feel like their lives lack meaning, for instance? Like you can measure that in terms of mental health, in terms of physical health, in terms of all sorts of outcomes. So really connecting these kind of philosophical ideas to modern psychological science. Okay, thank you. Yes, now we can move on. But we do want to know about you. We do want to know where you're from and a little bit about you. And then we want to hear about the Human Flourishing Lab. And why did you become an existential psychologist? Yes. Yeah, that's a good question. So about me, I mean, I'm right now I'm in Northwest Arkansas, which is where I live. I work for a DC-based think tank, but I spend most of my time I'm working remote. Bentonville is probably the, you probably heard of Bentonville, Arkansas, where Walmart headquarters is. So I live about 20 minutes outside of Bentonville and kind of in the woods of the Ozark Mountains. My family's from Southwest Missouri, but I was actually born in West Africa. My parents were foreign missionaries. And so I spent the first six years of my life in, or almost six years in Cote d'Ivoire, West Africa, or Ivory Coast, West Africa. Got really sick with malaria, moved back to Missouri where our family is and spent most of my young years there. So wait, I have to say one thing. If you see a guy in Bentonville walking around with a big mustache, that would be Robert Cook, my son, who's moving there in June. Really? (laughs) I just had to say that because... That's amazing, yeah. You don't hear too many people living in and around Bentonville. No, this is true. No, but so then how did you decide to become a psychologist or an existential psychologist? When I was in college, I first was interested in criminal justice. You know, it's not uncommon for people to change their (laughs) students, to change their majors. And I first started with an interest in criminal justice. But even then, I was kind of interested in like 
like a lot of young guys, you know, it's like, oh, I want to study the criminal mind. <laughs> you know, what makes people tick? But then I took a psychology class as actually part of that criminal justice major. You take some psychology and I took a psychology class. And I was like, oh, yeah, I, you know, maybe this is a better direction. This is what I'm really interested in is not just studying criminals, but, you know, studying human motivation more broadly. And then really knowing anything about existential psychology till I went to graduate school and I went to the University of Missouri in Columbia, Missouri to do my PhD. Um, I had the opportunity to work with some researchers there who were studying, like, what does it mean to be a human being that's distinctly aware of our mortal limitations while at the same time, you know, having grand goals, right? We really want to do something significant and something important in our lives. And we want to be part of something bigger than ourselves. And so what are the implications of being able to ask those existential questions and grapple with those existential anxieties too? I guess I was just interested in that, just kept going down that path. Yeah. So you're with the Human Flourishing Lab at the Archbridge Institute? That's right. Yeah. So I was a professor at a university for 17 years, actually lived in England for a couple of years at the University of Southampton. And then I was at North Dakota State University in Fargo, North Dakota for 15 years, you know, left academia to join Archbridge Institute, which is a nonpartisan public policy think tank in D.C., which had a lot of focus on sort of the economics of human flourishing, issues around like social mobility, the American dream, things like that. But what they wanted to do is really expand into a more holistic approach to human flourishing. Obviously, economics is important. You know, people need to pay their bills. People need to meet their basic financial needs. But like I've been saying thus far, like we're more than that. It's not enough just to feed our bellies. We want to feed our souls, so to speak, right? And we have these other social needs, the spiritual needs, these other interests beyond just the material. I mean, people think about things like Maslow's hierarchy of needs is probably an example most people are familiar with this. We have these like basic physical needs, but beyond that, we also have needs to have relationships, to be part of a community, to pursue our full potential, to live lives of meaning. And so Archbridge, we really wanted to expand into those spaces. And so that's why I joined them and launched the Human Flourishing Lab to really develop that more holistic approach to well-being and to human flourishing. How did your interest in nostalgia come about? When I first started thinking about nostalgia, I actually was more interested in, you know, what you might think of as the opposite direction of thinking, which is people thinking about the future. And this gets back to the existential question, which is part of what it means to be human is to dream, right? To plan, to have aspirations. And that really, really helps us in a lot of ways because we exercise self-control in the present. Not always, not always well, but we'll put aside immediate wants in the service of long-term goals. And so we have to be able to imagine a future, right? We have to say, well, you know, at some point this will pay off. So that's what I was really interested in is thinking about the future. Well, that also comes with that gift of, you know, the ability to think about the future comes with a certain level of anxiety, too, because the future is unknown. It's uncertain. And the one certainty is not a great one. Our mortality, right? And right. so that's really what I started looking at is what does it mean to be an organism that can time travel mentally into the future? And that creates hopes, but it also creates fears and anxieties. And then how do we cope with those fears? And that's when I really started to think about well, that same ability to mentally time travel that allows us to imagine a future also allows us to travel backwards and to recollect the past, to reflect on the past. And just maybe when we worry about the future, we turn to the past to help us deal with that, to help us manage those concerns. And so it was really that uniquely human ability to mentally time travel that got me thinking about nostalgia 
So I kind of almost like accidentally stumbled into nostalgia because I was thinking about, well, what do people do when they're worried about their future and they don't know what direction in life to take or they're fearful of the uncertainty of it? And it turns out one of the things we do, not the only thing, but one of the things we do to grapple with those fears is to look backwards and to say, what are the memories that define me? What are the memories that have made my life worthwhile? What are the things that, you know, help me figure out what my priorities are in life and how can I use those memories like to boldly step forward into the future and, you know, carve out a path. And so that's really how I started thinking about these issues. And so this idea of nostalgia and Dora and I, when we were talking, we kept coming back to this idea of, well, gee, the work we do is about being here in the now, right? And we've heard you explain that with Tammy and others. Can you explain that to our listeners? how that works? Because we talk about being mindful, being present, like staying here. You know, one of the things that we juggle as humans is there's this balancing act of we do need to live in the present. We need to be aware of what's going on in front of us. And we need to appreciate that. Even at like a basic level, we just need attention. Right? We need to pay attention to what's in front of us in the present in order to make good decisions, in order to enjoy life. But at the same time, we have to balance that with there's going to be a tomorrow. We have to plan for it. And like I said, part of that planning process is figure out what you want to do with your life, making decisions. And so in those instances, there's lots of things we can do. But one of the things we do do is we look to the past. So in addition to that, when we're trying to figure out like how to live in the present, we're constantly making decisions. And part of the way we make those decisions, like how do I want to spend my day? One of the things, if you talk to people about regret, for instance, you say, what are some of your regrets? We think of that as a negative thing, right? People look back and say, well, I wish I would have spent more time with my family. Or relationships are, are a big source of regret. I wish I would have spent more time focused on that and less time worrying about status and money and things like that. That's one side of it. But the other side of it is, well, how do you know that? And it's like, well, because the times that were really fulfilling were the times I spent with family. So the other side of that is the nostalgia piece, which is the way we understand what to prioritize kind of doing an audit of the past and saying, well, my life is going to be more fulfilling in the present if I focus on these things. And how do I know that? Because that was the case of the past. It's like we're using our own life history as a guide to live more intentionally and more mindfully in the present, which also has the effect of helping us. Like tomorrow's going to be a present too. And the day after that's going right. to be a present too. It sort of set ourselves up for living more intentionally. Nostalgia isn't necessarily positive experiences that you look back on. Can it be negative experiences? And how does that work? One of the things that I think is really fascinating about nostalgia is its emotional complexity. It's not the same thing as a happy memory, as you suggest. Oftentimes, nostalgic memories have this bittersweet component. And part of that is because oftentimes we're nostalgic for something that we feel like we don't have right now. If it's part of our habitual life, we're not as nostalgic about it as if it's something we really miss. Whether that's a person, whether that's a place, whether it's a way we felt at a certain time in our lives. So there is that sense of loss or longing, which is part of that bittersweetness. But in addition to that, a lot of the most meaningful life experiences are complex, right? They're not just pure joy. They involve challenge, they involve stress, they involve like worry, they involve overcoming like some kind of hardship, they involve triumph over tragedy. What I like to think of as nostalgia, it's not necessarily happy memories, it's meaningful memories. It's memories that we find self-defining in some way. And a lot of times those are difficult. It's like if you read a book or if you watch a movie or you, the fiction stories that we enjoy, 
aren't ones of just like pure happiness. They're ones where the characters have to go through something difficult to figure out who they are, to test their resilience, to prove their character, to grow as a person. But that's true for us too. We like those stories in fiction because that's how life works. And so nostalgia is like that. We like memories that, yes, that can be fun and positive, but the most powerful nostalgic memories are the ones that we feel like really helped us figure out who we are. And I think that can involve negative emotions. Negative emotions are often underappreciated in the modern world. You know, we're often told like we should just be happy all the time and we should just focus on what makes us happy. But a lot of times what makes our lives worth living involve overcoming some kind of hardship or doing something like doing difficult things on purpose to better ourselves. Okay, so what about if you rewrite your history? Does that matter? What if like you're not really honest with what happened in the past? That's a good question. You know, and then you align in a different kind of way. Does that impact things? That is a really good question. I mean, one of the challenges of doing nostalgia research is typically we can't test it against facts. But, you know, based on all sorts of different converging research, my suspicion is that if you did that, like your nostalgia actually wouldn't be as helpful. It'd be self-deceptive. If your nostalgia involves rewriting history, you wouldn't know it. It wouldn't be as helpful because it wouldn't be based on reality. A true experience, yeah. yeah. That being said, there is something to, like, nostalgia is kind of fuzzy in some ways. It's not like a tape recorder. You're not playing back a memory. And so there is a bit of a constructive process, which isn't the same as self-deception, but you are... In a way, you're looking back and going back to the film example, you're acting like an editor, like you're putting together the highlight reel, right? You're putting together a compelling story. Your brain just does this naturally. Part of making meaning is just making sense of our reality. And so nostalgia helps us do that. So it's not the case that you would want to use someone's nostalgic memory for like courtroom testimony, for right, instance. Right, right, right. <laughs> um, but the idea is like the things that were in there that you can get the gist of that are helpful to you should be fairly accurate, hopefully. <laughs> What are some of the benefits of nostalgia? It's funny because when I first started studying nostalgia, I had a more cynical might be a strong term, but I definitely had a more skeptical view where I thought, well, what's going to happen is people are going to be dealing with something difficult or they're going to be unsatisfied in some way. And they're going to look back on these memories and that's going to reduce anxiety, reduce stress. It's going to provide some kind of comfort. And that's great. But that's it. That's the whole story right there is nostalgia comforts us, which is useful. Um, and then we can move on. What I didn't realize, and this is what's cool about science, is you discover things that you don't necessarily predict and that pushes you in a different direction. What I didn't realize at the time was how much nostalgia has these other benefits. It does comfort us. But in addition to that, it inspires us. It motivates us. It energizes us. It does make us feel younger, especially when we get around middle age. It reminds us of those times when we were younger, when we felt free and youthful and energized in life as you get older and you have more responsibilities. It's easy to get kind of stuck in a rut. Patterns are good, especially if you have healthy habits, because <laughs> you don't have to think about everything. You can kind of set your life up to build those types of healthy habits. But that also can mean you're missing opportunities for growth, for trying new things, for exploration, for curiosity. Nostalgia can help you reconnect with that and be like, oh, yeah, when I was younger, I was like willing to try that. I was willing to do this. I felt bolder. Harnessing that power can energize that youthful spirit. It's not going to make your body younger. Like you're not, gonna, you're not going to be able to, you know, run as fast or be disastrous. If I probably right now, if I decided to go get on a skateboard or something, like a 15 year old, <laughs> but it can help you tap into that feeling, which you know can transfer to other things. You might be anxious about new technologies. 
So, you know, I'm too old to learn this stuff, but nostalgia can be like, you know what? No, like I can try new things. You know, I'm capable of doing this and nostalgia can help do that. So in addition to the psychological comfort that nostalgia has been documented to provide, it also boosts a sense of meaning in life, it boosts a sense of inspiration, it makes people more curious, it makes them want to go out and connect more. So it's a far more expansive growth-oriented experience than I guessed when I first started studying it. You know what I keep thinking, Doro, is about gratitude, right? And how you actually spoke about gratitude when you were in Boca Grande. And it's giving you this opportunity to have so much gratitude for you, sort of self-love for yourself and for what life's offered you. It's kind of a neat way of packaging it. I'm glad you mentioned gratitude because that was one of the first clues that we discovered. So I moved to the UK to work in a a research center there just so I could, right after finishing my PhD, so I could really focus on nostalgia because they were building a center around nostalgia. And one of the studies we did is where we lived in Southampton, like 90% of that city was destroyed by German bombing during World War II. But there were still people that lived there that were children during that time. They have like memories about like living in southern England during World War II, which is a very traumatic time. We were able to go and collect nostalgic memories from a lot of these people. And one of the things that was interesting is we didn't tell them to write about their childhood. We just said, share nostalgic memory with us. Not everyone did this, but a number of people wrote about that time, and they talked about it being a great time of disruption. Their fathers were away on the, on the European continent fighting in the war. Families were divided. Many of them were sent out to live with grandparents in the countryside. By a lot of like indicators, you would think these aren't like great memories. But they had nostalgia for them because they would say it really focused our mind on the importance of family and what life's really about, like what we should care about. Like it stripped away kind of the nonsense. And then we started to see words like it made me grateful. It made me thankful for my family. And so that was one of the first clues that were like, oh, there's something going on here. Like it's not just people connecting with consumer products or something, you know, like from a marketing point of view, which is an interesting and important area of nostalgia research, which I'm happy to talk about. But there's something deeper to that. There's a deeper connection to people really thinking about what it is that they find really important and fulfilling in life and being grateful for that. So nostalgia definitely increases gratitude. And that was an interesting discovery for us that really helped push us more in this path of like, this isn't just like a pleasant, happy feeling, like there's something deeper here. I want to ask you if you have a special nostalgic memory, but I want to first say that as I was thinking about this, I was thinking, well, I don't know what nostalgia I had that shaped my future in any way, but then I thought of it. One thing I missed about my dad, I was very close to him, was that he was a boater and that my most nostalgic memories are being in the boat with him. At one point in my life, I thought, wait a minute, I can be a boater. I can drive a boat. I think you have to tell me, you're the expert on nostalgia. Is that an example of how nostalgia can motivate you to do something in your life that you might not have thought about doing? That's an excellent example. And it highlights a couple of really important things in that one memory you shared, which is the social nature of nostalgia, which most of our nostalgic memories involve people we feel really close to, that we have deep relationships with. And the second feature is like how that inspires us, what we learn from that experience and how that gives us like confidence and boldness. That's an excellent example. What about you? Tell us your nostalgic memory, maybe that shaped your life. I'll share a couple. One is when I was a kid, I used to mow lawns with my dad. Like one of his goals was really to teach us this kind of like 
entrepreneurial spirit, this like work hard and like you can start when you're young. My dad had some rental properties and he would have me like mow them, you know, mow the lawns for them. And I remember at the time, like not liking it, like hating it. I was like, <laughs> a, like my dad would drag me out and I'd be like, you know, I got to go mow these lawns or whatever. Another reason I'm bringing up that is the smell is powerful in nostalgia. Like gasoline is not a pleasant smell. And I just remember like filling these mowers with gas and like having like rags with gas on them and like, just like having a really hard time washing that smell off of your hands. And so I have this very distinct memory of that. At the time, I'm sure I was not the most pleasant <laughs> adolescent. <laughs> I didn't want to go do this. But now I look back on it and I was like, I was spending time with my dad. He was teaching me life skills. He was teaching me the importance of like a work ethic. And even today, like if I smell that gasoline, it's like, it's not a pleasant smell, like the smell of gasoline. You know, I have a positive orientation towards it, even while simultaneously not liking it because it's tied to those memories. And when I lost my dad a number of years ago, you have that kind of experience of loss. You often do start to go back and think about like those memories and those experiences with them and you carry them forward. And I think one of the cool existential features of nostalgia is people say, oh, people keeping people alive in your memory. I mean, that's a big part of it. It's like in a way it's an ongoing relationship because to this day I can look back on that and I can say, well, I'm still learning from that. And then the other thing that's neat is even if it's not the exact same experience, we pass that down to the next generation. And that's often how like culture works, right? It's like the transmission of ideals and goals and responsibilities and duties and roles from one generation to the next. And we can think about it at the broad level, but at the more like personal level, this happens within family and within these kinds of relationships. And so it's an ongoing relationship with the people from our past, but also the future, like future generations. And so there's something really neat, I think, about how nostalgia works as this kind of like channel of passing things from generation to generation. You know, I was thinking about right now, my mother is at a care facility. And so she's somebody that I see almost every day and she's dementia. And it's funny because I was thinking about this nostalgia with her and how in a way nostalgia is carrying her through a little bit or is it habits? But she growing up would be an exerciser and it was common for her to be in front of like Jack LaLanne or she would do the things in front of the television and things. And so now their exercise routine in the mornings is in front of a television. When I'm with her, we do it together. And there's a real strong sense of nostalgia with me from a long time ago, doing this with my mom in front of the television. And then there she is doing it, feeling secure and otherwise not secure. Otherwise her anxiety is taken over. It's almost like nostalgia in real time. There's some interesting work on like how populating environments with these kinds of experiences that connect people to how they were when they are younger is really good in the way you articulated there was a, I don't remember what this was, but there was like a retirement community where they built it to look like. Yeah, the, like the 1950s yeah. or something. Yes, I mean, yes, yes, yes. You yes, see yes. these kind of like little, you know, obviously not very common kind of experiments with this, but in small ways, we can do this with all sorts of like keepsakes or, you know, reinvigorating an old routine. Like you said, this is why I think music is so powerful. We all have a soundtrack to our lives. And it's like when you hear that music from decades ago, it instantly reconnects you to that 
it's a package deal, right? With the it music is. comes the emotions. And that's, it's you know, true. that's one of the reasons where I think advertising and marketing is so good at this because people often think of consumer nostalgia as being somewhat superficial. It's like, oh, why do you feel like attached to like a product or a brand? But there's something deeper there. I'm like, and Doro is too, I think, kind of new to being Swifties, you know? No, okay, yeah. <laughs> and isn't that what she's doing? The storytelling, the feelings. Is that nostalgic? Because I feel nostalgic when I hear her songs or whatever. And then when I learn what she's written about and they are saying that that's what we're connecting with her. Is that true? I mean, it might be. I, I have to confess ignorance. <laughs> You're not a Swifty? To, I'm not. You're not. How can know, you not be a Swifty? <laughs> I know very little about. I know this right. is a big deal. <laughs> it is, Clay. It might be the new book, okay? <laughs> it's storytelling is the idea and going back into feelings and then putting that to music, to your point, putting it to music. And in our case, if we hear songs that make us feel that way, I think it's very true, Dora, right? When we all hear music, it takes you right back. And I would say smell too. I mean, I have a song by Stevie Wonder that literally takes me back to a moment that I was dancing with somebody. Oh, would every you like time to I share. <laughs> <laughs> every time I, okay, here, isn't she lovely? <laughs> I remember dancing with a boy in Florida and um, I get it. I get it. Yeah. And it probably does bring up feelings of joy or brings up feelings of whatever it was that, that yes. you have that, that then your body feels for real, right? And sees that as yes. a moment and reacts to that. So that's where this is so cool, Clay. To your point about the Swifty, like you're saying that you're connecting to a younger generation's like pop music, but it goes the other way too. Like for instance, Spotify documented last year that one of their biggest trends for young people was listening to older music, was discovering older music. So it's almost like the reverse of that, which is like they're either remembering songs that they heard like older siblings or cousins or parents and aunts and uncles playing you know they have a, a sense of nostalgia for that and they're trying to rediscover it for themselves there's a lot of nostalgia around pre-cell phones among younger mm, people yeah, even though they true. grew up with them you know so it's not really their personal nostalgia but they know that that's the time before cell phones and they're fascinated with that. And, <laughs> <Got> um, <it. laughs> and you see this in all sorts of, you know, people like to think about 1920s fashion or architecture. I mean, people have these like generational nostalgic components that were not really from their own time. But what's interesting about that is if you dig a little bit deeper, and I'm curious about if this is true with your Swifty example, if you dig a little bit deeper, Oftentimes, it's even though it's not your personal memory or your personal generation, it is connected to people that you're interacting with. You know, sometimes you'll see young guys into old muscle cars and it's like, oh, well, they remember their dads working on these cars. Somebody will have antique dishes and they remember eating off these dishes when they went to their grandma's house. Do you think the reverse is true? Like, are there younger people in your life that are really the Taylor Swift that introduce you to that and that's a way to connect with them or would you say or yeah i i think so for sure and it's happening and you're right and we're connecting with them and in her case her songs are storytelling about her emotions 
So she writes about like people she breaks up with and stuff. <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of a big thing. What's Maybe that, it's universal stories, stories yeah, that I were the same. But she taps into emotions, nostalgia, and things that we all share, experiences that we share. Yeah. I think you're onto something here. Swifty psychology. Swifty psychology. <laughs> Do you think the human flourishing lap would start that? They're here in D.C. We could go on down today if you want us. <laughs> <laughs> Anything's possible, I suppose. <laughs> what are some of the practices you can do to harness nostalgia to boost your motivation? We talked about some, but what are some others? Nostalgia is something that we naturally do. It is part of the human experience. And by the way, this is something that, though most of my own work has been focused more in the Western world, there is now like a growing interest in psychology globally on nostalgia. And so... There are some cultural differences, but it's largely a universal experience. To be human is to experience nostalgia in a very similar way, despite your age, despite your culture, despite these other differences between us. So as far as like really how to harness something that we're naturally doing, it's almost like exercise. Like we all walk around and do things like that, that burn calories and that are good for us. But we also know that we can more intentionally focus on certain routines or certain muscle groups or things that, you know, to really enhance that experience. I see nostalgia as the same, like we can do it in a more intentional way. And I think things that are interactive are powerful. Obviously, listening to music is good, and we talked about it. Listening to music isn't necessarily passive if you're doing something with it, but it's a little bit more passive than, say, like journaling or starting a hobby that involves interacting with something physically in a way that allows you to express your creativity. And so I think whether it's writing, whether it's quilting, whether it's cooking, you know, something that allows you to really interact with the sensory inputs of nostalgia, the smells, the sounds, it is especially powerful because it's bringing online all these other inputs. But also like a big one is the social nature of it, sharing memories. You have your memories, you have your nostalgic feelings, they're yours, they're unique to you. It's also really powerful to tell those stories to other people and then they share with you. Nostalgia has this effect of really pushing people out of themselves, you know, using your Taylor Swift example. Or, you know, you saw this over the summer with the Barbie movie. Star Wars fans have been doing this for a long time. Like people that have like nostalgic memories around like pop culture themes, they don't just want to keep that to themselves. They want to hang out with each other. They want to talk about them. They want to put it on the Internet. They want to share their reactions to things. And so I think that's one of the more powerful elements of nostalgia is even though nostalgia is an experience within your own brain, it pushes you out of your head towards interacting with others, sharing with others, creating. And, and that's honestly how a lot of innovation happens. Like you take an old idea, you say, this is why it's meaningful to me, and then you pass it on and so the next generation puts their spin on it. They make it more relevant to their challenges and their issues and their concerns you know, we just keep the whole thing going. And so I think really things that allow you to not just experience things by yourselves, but to go out to interact with others and to really do something hands-on is very powerful. This has been really a good conversation. And I know we're going to look back on it. It'll be one of our good moments. I know, a nostalgic moment. <laughs> yes. And we're excited about your book, Pass Forward, yes. How Nostalgia Can Help You Live a More Meaningful Life. So Clay, thank you for joining us on Health Gig. 
Thank you so much for having me. It's been a really fun conversation. And you've given me a lot to think about, too. Now I've got to listen to some Taylor Swift, I guess. A hundred percent. You will thank us. <laughs> thank you for joining us on Health Gig. We loved having you with us. We hope you'll tune in again next week. In the meantime, be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast and follow us on healthgigpod.com. I'm Trisha. And I'm Doro. Be well. <laughs>